Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started. On September 26, 2015, a miracle occurred on the tarmac of Philadelphia International Airport. Michael Keating, then 10 years old, waited in anticipation for the arrival of Pope Francis. Chuck Keating, Michael's father, was the leader of the Bishop Shanahan's high school band, which had been selected to play in celebration of the Pope's arrival. But he almost didn't bring Michael on that fateful day. But their priest gave a homily that encouraged all to go who could, and so Chuck and his wife Kristen were inspired to do whatever they could to bring their son to this momentous occasion. Michael suffers from cerebral palsy. His care is complex, and the risk of complications from seizures and of overheating are a constant concern, yet there Michael was with his twin brother, Chris, and sister Katie, watching as the Pope landed and as he was transported to his official vehicle. Just as the Pope's car was slowly driving away, past the exuberant, adoring crowds, it came to a stop. Before the family could process what was happening, Pope Francis approached Michael directly. He kissed him on his forehead, blessed him, and then held Michael's parents' hands. This was a joyful moment and a comforting one for the whole family, perhaps Kristen especially so. She said, I just feel like it's someone else who's going to pray and watch over Michael. It's someone who's a little closer to God, maybe who is putting in a good word to look out for Michael. Michael and his twin brother Chris had been adopted by Chuck and Kristen as infants. Despite the lifelong physical and emotional cost of raising a child with Michael's medical complexities, they never regretted their decision to adopt the boys. In fact, they feel blessed. Chuck said, I think Michael is a teacher. Michael has taught me quite a bit about patience, love, the importance of what a hug and a kiss means. That's not to say that it's been easy. Michael has required multiple surgeries and ongoing testing, in addition to requiring a wheelchair-accessible home and vehicle, and the caregiving required is immense. But the remarkably sacred moment shared between Michael and the Pope was life-changing for Michael and his family. There was an outpouring of generosity from people who had witnessed the moment. In fact, more than $114,000 was donated to the family. Overwhelmed with the support of many strangers, the Keatings were able to purchase a new, specially equipped vehicle for transporting Michael, as well as cover some of the costs of his additional care. Perhaps, though, the greatest miracle that occurred that day was the peace it left in Chuck and Kristen's hearts. Kristen reflected, The Pope kissed our son. He's saying that it's going to be okay, and I'm here with you. Miracles take all forms, don't they? They certainly do. In this case, the miracle experienced wasn't physical in nature, but rather a healing of the heart when this very deserving child and his family needed it most, and a great improvement of their circumstances as well. Yeah, you're right. Miracles can involve the healing of the body, but that's not always the case. Right. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a miracle can be an unusual and mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by a god because it does not follow the usual laws of nature, or a very lucky event that is surprising and unexpected. Yeah, I think the keywords here are very lucky. 
A pop fly at a baseball game does not warrant miracle status. Unless, of course, it was me catching it. Frankly, (laughs) that could be considered a miracle. (laughs) Yeah, me too, Walker. (laughs) There's also a third definition. A miracle is also an excellent achievement in a particular area of activity. Like perhaps a medical breakthrough? Right. I think the very first definition is how most people define a miracle, though. Mm -hmm. They think of a very spiritual experience like a healing at the hands of God. Right. When all hope is virtually lost, the miracle provides us with just a chance that something beyond our knowledge or expectations can save or heal us. And of course, miracles don't happen every day. According to Dr. Philip M. Rossoff of Duke University Medical Center, part of the power of the miracle's allure is their rarity. If they happened all the time to lots of people, they would not be so miraculous. Mm -hmm. And yet miracles seem to be part of human history. They are told as part of the fabric of most religions. Take the Bible. Perhaps one of the most well-known Christian miracles is the miraculous transformation of water into wine by Jesus Christ in the first century AD. Right. And also those miracles of Jesus feeding the first 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And then on a second occasion, 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. It's quite a tale, isn't it? It is. But there are so many lesser known miracles that are said to have occurred. Have you heard of the deacon Francois de Paris of the Church of Saint-Médard in Paris? No. The miracles began on the day of his internment and continued for years afterward. People who touched his coffin had spontaneous and miraculous healing, even curing those sick with cancer and the blind. The church closed in 1732. Incredible. Mm -hmm. Miraculous events are, of course, not unique to Christianity. The Zamzam well, located within the Majid al-Haram in Mecca, is visited by pilgrims each year who drink the water, which is said to have healing properties. The well was said to have miraculously sprung when Hajar, the mother of the prophet Ismail, was frantically searching for water for her son. So many pilgrimages culminate at the site where a miracle is said to have taken place. It's so true. And one of these pilgrimages is on my bucket list walker, the Camino de Santiago. There are so many routes And you can join in for one, two weeks, two months, whatever you want. So what's so special about the Camino? It's an 800-kilometer medieval pilgrimage route to the grave of the Apostle James at the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. People have been walking this route for over 1,200 years. And people engage in pilgrimages for so many reasons. Some to become closer to the divine in their life and some for healing of their suffering or that of someone that they love. I visited Fatima in Portugal, the site where three young girls were visited by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I was struck by the devotion and dedication of the pilgrims there. There were 80-year-old women making their pilgrimage to the shrine on their knees, and there were young people as well, healthy, sick, all types. It really was a sight to behold. Also well-known are healing waters at the sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes in France. Oh, yes. I heard a story about Lourdes once. This World War I vet by the name of Jack Trainer had suffered tremendously as a result of a gunshot to his head and arm. This injury left him half paralyzed and unable to walk. So he went to Lourdes and it's said that he regained full function of his body only four days after being immersed in the healing waters at Lourdes. This makes for a pretty compelling reason to visit, no? Well, that was a miracle, but what followed was not. According to the History Channel, Mr. Trainer was denied a disability pension by the British government after his miraculous recovery and spent the last 20 years of his life delivering coal. Well, perhaps still preferable to a lifetime of pain and lack of mobility, but only he would know, I suppose. It's not necessary to be either religious or make some kind of act of devotion to experience a miracle, though, is it? 
It's not, and we have the great pleasure to chat with one such person today. Kevin Hines not only has experienced a miracle firsthand, he is also a best-selling author, award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, motivational speaker, and an advocate for suicide prevention. Kevin speaks at schools, colleges, and universities, sharing his story and advocating for suicide prevention. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Kevin. So, Kevin, your story is nothing short of remarkable. Could you describe for us what life was like before the fateful day in September 2000? Absolutely. So, I was born in abject poverty. Uh, my birth parents, after they had my brother and I uh, succumbed to drugs and alcohol, and I bounced around in foster care with my brother. He died. We both got bronchitis and he passed away. So, I was a survivor from a very young age. And uh, I bounced around from home to home in foster care until I was so uh, blessed to be adopted by Pat and Debbie Hines. And they saved my life. They made me their son. They are my mom and dad. Growing up in that household, I thought, I got this. You got to make the shade, you know, nothing can go wrong from here. And it wasn't until 17 and a half years of age that everything came crashing down. I had a complete mental breakdown at 17 in front of 1,200 people, ended up being placed on medications. I was haphazardly following a treatment plan while in denial of my diagnosis of bipolar depression, which I would be triply diagnosed with by three different doctors. Uh, I just wanted this thing to go away. Mm -hmm. And at 19, I was so distraught and in so much despair that I attempted to take my life by leaping off the Golden Gate Bridge, which at the time was a method of suicide that was 99.9% fatal. What led up to that really was a, a skyrocketing into manic euphoric natural highs every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then a crashing into darkness and depression every Thursday and Friday, like clockwork. Mm-hmm. And I was really struggling and I couldn't bear the weight of the pain I was experiencing any longer. And that's truly what led me to go over the rail. Mm-hmm. I've actually listened to your audiobook, Crack Not Broken. And um and in hearing your story in your own voice, it's something that I would recommend to anybody to to actually do. On this day when you felt you needed to take this drastic action and you decided to leap from the bridge. Can you tell us about the miracle that unfolded? But first, I I wanted to know if you could just sort of walk us through. I know you had an experience on the bridge where you were kind of waiting for somebody to say, don't do this. I made a pact with myself that if one person says to me, are you okay? Or can I help you? I would have told them everything and paid them to help me stay. I couldn't voice my own pain outside of my body if something was holding me back. I didn't decide to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge like you would decide to buy a slice of pizza or right. go to a baseball game. It was a compulsion. I was hearing voices in my head, not that of my conscience, auditory hallucinations telling me I had to die. I was in a great amount of pain. Mm-hmm. I call it lethal emotional pain. That's where that's what that's what leads everyone I've ever known to die by suicide to suicide is lethal emotional pain. It was such a, a place of turmoil that I was in. And from the train ride to the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, wishing, hoping, and praying that one person would stop me. Now, I do recognize that people need to save themselves from their own struggles, but sometimes 
everyone needs help sometimes, right? And and I needed someone to reach in rather than me reaching out in that moment. And there were plenty of opportunities, right, for people. Plenty of opportunities. I was crying my eyes on the bus. People were staring at me. I was yelling aloud at the crowd, at the voices in my head. People were making fun of me. It was really brutal, the lack of empathy that I saw that day. Mm-hmm. The, the bus got to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. And 100 people deboarded right there. And I sat there crying, hoping the driver would see my pain, say something kind and compassionate, and keep me alive. Mm-hmm. Instead, he said, come on, kid, get off the bus. I got to go. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to him with waterfalls flowing from my eyes. And he just motioned for me to get off the bus. And I, I, I was devastated. And I walked up and down the Golden Gate Bridge walkway for 40 minutes, crying like a baby. And so many people passed me by, bikers, joggers, runners, tourists, patrol officers, searching for suicidal people. Now, to be fair to those wonderful officers is that they, they didn't have the training they have now for suicide prevention. I've trained many of them. And uh, today they say between 50 and 120 lives from leaping off that bridge a year. And that's incredible. It is. But they didn't have that protocol for me. They had it because of me. I found a particular light rail, still hoping someone could stop me because I couldn't stop myself. And a woman approached me. She pulled out a digital camera and she said, will you take my picture? I thought, can you not see the pain I'm in? But she couldn't. Or maybe she could and that was her way of interacting with me. I don't don't know. I'll never know. And I, I, I took her picture several times and she walked away. And at that moment, I told myself the single greatest lie ever told. Absolutely no one cares. Furthest thing from the truth. Had my father known where I was or what I was doing that day, or my mother for that matter, or anyone who loved me, had known where I was and what I was doing, they would have all moved heaven and earth to keep me safe from myself that day. But they, they didn't know. And I left. And I prayed on the way down. I, I asked God to save me. And I hit the water. And when you hit that water from that height at that speed, you hit it 15,000 pounds of pressure. I went under the water and I was deep underwater. It was getting darker and darker. I was swimming in the wrong direction. I was going down. The water got murkier. My eyes began to bulge. My ears began to ring. I knew my mistake. I shot from the surface. I got to the surface. I bobbed up and down and I prayed, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake on repeat. And that's when something very large and slimy and very alive began circling beneath me. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and a shark is going to eat Yeah. It turned out I was no shark at all. (laughs) People who witnessed me leaping off the Golden Gate Bridge reported to the Coast Guard that a sea lion kept me afloat to the Coast Guard put a ride behind. If you don't call that a miracle, I don't know what it is. And the Coast Guard boat arrives, and they fish me onto their flatboard, and they put me on a neck brace, and, a neck brace and they strap me in. And they said, kid, do you understand how many people we pull out of these waters that are already gone? I said, young man, this unit alone, this year alone, has put up uh, 26 dead bodies from these waters, only one live one, you. Mm-hmm. In our entire career, we pulled out 57 dead bodies, only one live one, you. And that gave me the greatest point of crystal clarity I could have ever received and perspective. And I made a cognitive decision on that boat. 
that no matter the pain I would ever be in again, would never attempt to take my life. So this brings me to the question, why you? Why do you think you experienced this miracle? I think that some people are placed in situations in their lives as a setup for what comes next. Mm. There are no failures. If you think you've failed, you haven't walked far enough to reach success. It's a setup. It's a setup for something greater. Now, that being said, I don't want anybody else to learn the hard way like I had to. Yeah. I don't want anybody else to attempt. The reason I survived was so that I could go on and be a loving husband to my wife, Margaret, a dog father to my dog, Max, before he passed away. He was my emotional support animal, a great son to my parents, and a good sibling to my brothers and sisters. I survived as well to travel the world nearly 300 days a year, sharing stories that change lives. In 23 years of doing this work, the first speech I ever gave seven months after my attempt, in 23 years of doing this work, hundreds of thousands of people have said this story saved their life. From viral videos to public presentations to articles, however it happened, they say that this story saved their life. I don't own that. I'm no lifesaver. I'm a conduit. I give a message. People go home. They do the work, they ask for help, they tell their family, they tell their friends, they tell their counselors, they tell their therapists, and they stay alive. They're saving their own lives. They're just giving me credit. My point is this. We all have the power to use words to change a perspective. All of us do. We all have the ability to use the power of, of, of spoken language to change someone's mind. And if we would all use it more efficiently, more effectively, and more kindly, more compassionately, we could be a part of helping to save lives, all of us. I think suicide prevention is everyone's responsibility. Given the idea that, that we each have a one in 400 trillionth of a chance to be birthed into this world. Think about that. Yeah. Every single one of us on this planet had a one in 400 trillionth of a chance to simply exist. That's a miracle in itself. That's a miracle. It also means you're never meant to die by your hands. You're unique. You're a gift. Remember that. Well, you certainly are a gift to all of us with this, this message. And so you've transformed what I think is so aptly described as lethal emotional pain into your your life's work. And I know that you travel the world. How do you communicate this message? What is the, what is the driving force behind this message for you? It's the power of story and the power of faith. Stories are 22 times more memorable than statistics or facts or PowerPoints. When I tell a story like mine, when any storyteller tells their story, whether written or in public or on a film, the neural pathways of the audience link up with the storyteller. Our brains sync. You download that information in real time. And then when you go home and you're struggling with your own pain, you remember that story. The neural pathways spread out again and you feel what that person felt. And then you recognize if they can do it, I can too. If they can survive, I can survive. 
Mm-hmm. I can defeat this pain. You absorb the experience. You absorb, you absorb the experience and you expel it. And, and that, that's the reason that those hundreds of thousands of people have written to me and said those words. I'm not surprised. Because they connected to the story. They related to the story. And then the story helped change them or change their minds. Yeah. It's a, a powerful experience. Like, as you say, you're a conduit. It's translated through you into the lives of so, so many people. So if you were to share one message or piece of advice with our listeners right now, particularly at this time of year when it can be a really, really difficult time for people who are feeling vulnerable or are experiencing a lot of pain, what would it be? Just because you're going through a world of pain today does not mean you don't get to have that beautiful tomorrow. But you have to be here to get there in the first place. Keep going. Suicide does not take the pain away. It only makes it impossible for things to ever get better. Keep going. Suicide is never the solution to your problem. It is the problem. Suicidal ideations are the greatest liars we know. You don't have to listen to them. Keep going. That is profound, Kevin. So what's next for you and your message of hope that you are carrying throughout this world? So my new book, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives, just came out this September. And the audio book just dropped a couple of days ago. So you, you listen to the audio book of Crack Not Broken, which was the first in the Broken series. The Art of Being Broken is now an audio book. It's available right now on all platforms. And I, I also recorded that one. And I'm currently writing my final broken book in the Broken series, Unbroken. I'm really excited to get that out to the world. My children's book, The Dimly Lit Star About Childhood Bullying, dedicated to my mother, Deborah, comes out, I believe, on January 18th. It's great. It's set in space. And we have an incredible illustrator, Rin Maria. It's about the the two last stars on the Little Dipper. Mama Shines is my mom and Little Shines is me. And I was very heavily bullied as a child. And uh, this this story is a thank you to her optimism. It's really about building resilience when you be, when you are bullied in grade school. Um, it's, it's for children ages four through uh, 12. And, and it, it's a beautiful book, very uh, powerful, uh, moving story. Next to that, uh, we're making a new film called The Net about the 87-year effort to stop suicides at the Golden Gate Bridge, the seven fights that failed, and the current effort that has succeeded. And as of this month, very few people will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge as The Net is being finished right now. So we're really excited about that. We worked 23 years for that to happen as well. And the, and the film will come out probably next year. Well, a lot to look forward to from yeah. you next year. I can't wait to see the film. I can't wait to to get my hands on that children's book and to read your new book. Thank you. Kevin, you truly are an inspiration. We're so grateful to have you here today to share the miracle of your life and the light that you give to this world. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too. And if you would like to learn more about Kevin and his message of hope, you can go to his website at www.kevinhinesstory.com or his YouTube channel at at Kevin Hines on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Kevin Hines Story. Thanks again, Kevin. It is such important work that Kevin does. 
Oh, I could not agree with you more. There's really no way to measure the immensity of his positive contribution. It is a miracle that he survived, but even more remarkable is to think of how many lives he may have saved with his own story. Just a reminder for all of us to be aware of our loved ones. Be the light for each other. Absolutely, Walker. Most definitely. Life is a struggle, so we have to help each other through it. And if a miracle happens to grace our lives, all the better. There are tales of miracles of all shapes and sizes, though, aren't there, Walker? There are. Now, I have a gripping one for you. A Florida woman named Ruby Gropera Casimiro experienced an amniotic fluid embolism during a cesarean section. This is a rare and catastrophic event that can be fatal. Apparently, the medical staff tried to revive her for three hours. Her heart actually stopped for 45 minutes, and then it started beating without any medical assistance at all. Wow, a near-death experience if I've ever heard one. Totally. Mrs. Gropera Casimiro remembers feeling as if she was floating through a tunnel, and she saw spirits, one of whom was her own father. The most amazing thing, though, even after 45 minutes without a pulse, she recovered without brain damage. And her baby? Healthy and well. Oh, good. But this isn't the only good news story. Baltimore woman Kathy Patton was clinically dead for 45 minutes before she came back to life. Wow. Kathy's daughter was in labor. Kathy was at the hospital ready for her daughter's labor when she herself had a heart attack. Doctors performed CPR, and after nearly an hour, they regained her pulse, and she came back to life, shortly after her granddaughter was born by emergency C-section. What a happy ending, but holy stressful, man. Mm -hmm. My paramedic friends tell me it's really rare to have someone come back just as a result of CPR, so that day had the real potential to not have ended the way it did. Here's another similar miraculous recovery for you, Harris. 76-year-old Bella Montoya of Ecuador had been declared dead by doctors, but suddenly she started moving hours later in her casket. Oh my word. Apparently her son heard a sound and went to investigate. When he looked inside, he saw that his mom was moving her hand, opening her eyes, and struggling for breath. Are you kidding me? Mm -mm. Okay, it is a miracle that her son noticed, but how can that happen? How long has she been in there? Well, supposedly, she had been declared dead at 9 a.m., and by noon, her body was in the hands of her family. They say she had been in the casket for four hours. Okay, so whoever declared her dead was a little bit hasty. I'd say. <laughs> When a patient experiences autoresuscitation, it's actually called the Lazarus effect, so named after Lazarus of Bethany, who Jesus raised from the dead four days after his passing. Aptly named, the Lazarus effect happens often enough to be a documented medical circumstance. It follows a pattern, though. First, a patient experiences cardiac arrest, then CPR is performed. When CPR does not seem to be helping, the patient is thought to be dead. The patient is then declared dead by a medical practitioner and medical assistance ends. Then, minutes or hours later, the patient is seen to be moving or breathing longer than a few seconds. Finally, a healthcare provider makes a decision that circulation has resumed and medical care begins again. Crazy, huh? Super crazy and rare, I would guess. Well, the Cleveland Clinic says there are 65 documented cases in medical literature between the years of 1982 to 2018. They also state that the term Lazarus is a bit misleading. In fact, they say that the people who experience the Lazarus effect don't actually die and are resurrected. Even though their vital signs indicate their organs have stopped functioning, there's in fact just a delay in the return of blood flow after the administration of CPR. It's this delay that makes it appear that people have died and then come back to life. Wow. Okay. But still, it must be super freaky to witness or experience. 
But I don't think that Dr. Mary Neal's experience can be explained away by the Lazarus effect. Right. Dr. Neal, didn't we tell her story in a previous episode? We did. She is the orthopedic surgeon who was in a kayaking accident in Chile. Her kayak got stuck in the rocks, submerging her body underwater. She couldn't free herself and knew that this was the end. She had the whole life review and everything. In the end, she was without oxygen for almost 30 minutes. One kayaker and EMT described her as a blue, waxy, no heartbeat, no breathing, cold to the touch, dead. Long story short, she had a near-death experience, but came back to a full life against all odds. It's a wild story, and her near-death experience was something else. Miraculous stories of survival always also seem to accompany terrible disasters. Like recently, a four-month-old baby was found in a tree in Clarksville, Tennessee, after a tornado ripped through the area. Thank goodness, but what are the chances of that? Right, miraculous. Or take Pasquale Buzelli, the 911 surfer. He is said to have rode a blizzard of falling debris from the 22nd floor stairwell of the North Tower at the World Trade Center and survived. He was one of only two people who fell in this way and survived. Some people are skeptical. Even Pasquale, an engineer himself, says he would be skeptical too. But there is no disputing the fact that his survival of the disaster is a miracle. I remember that day so clearly, as so many of us do, particularly the loved ones of those who so tragically lost their lives. So Pasquale's survival could be put down to perhaps chance or luck, but many attribute their miracles to faith or the power of prayer. People lean in on their faith, particularly when faced with their own imminent death or that of someone they love. Mm -hmm, They do. Even if you're not religious, I think there's power in prayer. Well, the family of Paisley Hatfield could tell you a thing or two about that. When she was a baby, a mass was discovered in her brain. Paisley's parents and many others began to pray. When Paisley went for a biopsy of the mass, it was gone. The doctors had expected to find a malignant tuber, but it had disappeared. Now that's powerful prayer. This reminds me of Annabelle Beam. Have you heard her story, Walker? I have. She had been sadly diagnosed with a rare terminal stomach disorder. And sometime later, she was climbing a tree. The branch beneath her broke and it sent her down the hollow trunk head first, a full 30 feet. Wow. And while she was waiting there for rescue for several hours... In that time, she claims to have been visited by Jesus, who reassured her that she would survive. When she was taken to the hospital, she had suffered no major injuries, but the real miracle, she no longer had any evidence of the stomach disorder. Now, that story was made into a movie, right? Yeah, Miracles from Heaven. It was released in 2016. And listen to this, too. A 2021 case report described an 18-year-old girl who had lost most of her central vision from juvenile macular degeneration blindness for over 12 years. Then she experienced proximal intercessory prayer, or PIP, and gained her vision back immediately. Her vision continued to improve and remained good for over 40 years. What on earth is proximal intercessory prayer? According to a 2010 article in Southern Medical Journal, proximal intercessory prayer, PIP, is a term coined to refer to direct contact prayer, frequently involving touch by one or more persons on behalf of another. Like the laying on of hands. This seems pretty remarkable, hard to believe almost. Yeah, and sadly, prayer can't always avert every tragedy or difficult circumstance. As we know, Everlene Okello of Kenya found this out the hard way. How's that? Everlene was struggling financially to support her children without employment. She had heard about a pastor who, if you gave them money, they would pray for you and improve your situation. Mm. 
Everlene's friend even took a loan out on her behalf to pay this crooked pastor, but as one might expect, the prayers did not bring any positive change to Miss Akello's circumstances. Rather, she ended up in deeper financial trouble. Apparently, this is a practice with roots in the U.S., but it's now quite common in Nigeria. It's called a seed offering. Some Nigerians apparently have embraced this practice, as many are suffering financially. Unemployment there has doubled over the last seven years. Very difficult times. Very. And people are vulnerable when they're suffering and facing terrible loss. They can be taken advantage of so easily and can fall for the promise of a miracle. Like those so-called faith leaders who are living in the lap of luxury, a lifestyle funded by their devoted but impoverished followers. Exactly. Take, for example, Kenneth Copeland. He preaches what is known as prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel, which is defined by the notion that one's financial and physical well-being are determined by God. Copeland is a televangelist and has come under some scrutiny and suspicion. He is said to be the wealthiest pastor in the world with a net value of well over 700 million U.S. dollars. Wealthiest pastor in the world, that does raise some eyebrows. Mm -hmm. They are a charismatic bunch, though. I remember watching Ernest Ainsley on the television when I was growing up. Remember him? Mm -hmm. Plenty of people claim to have been healed by him. He became quite controversial when he claimed that Jesus could cure HIV and AIDS. Wow. Yeah, I remember those shows, too. They always played on Sunday mornings when really all I wanted to watch was cartoons. (laughs) But there wasn't any other programming back in the day. Except in the Evening Walker, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, if I was allowed to stay up late. But sadly, the Ed Sullivan show was canceled the year I was born, or I would have watched that too, to see Elvis. You're a fan. I know, Harris. So did you know about the miraculous weeping Elvis? But of course. <laughs> in a town called Dern in the Netherlands, a bust of Elvis Presley began weeping on the 25th anniversary of the singer's death. Toon Neuenhuizen, an Elvis impersonator, told Reuters that his Elvis statue was crying for all his fans around the world. Oh, an Elvis impersonator? Yeah. And some might say Toon is a bit of a loony tune too, Walker. He has claimed to be in contact with the king himself daily and possessed by the king when on stage. He says, Elvis has told me my ghost is in you and I feel him in my leg when I'm singing. Now that just totally weirds me out. So did anyone actually see the tears on the Elvis statue? I'm not sure if the source of the tears were ever authenticated, but it did capture the headlines around the world. Weeping statues, you know, they're a thing. I wonder how many took the pilgrimage in their blue suede shoes. (laughs) So you know that miracles fascinate me, right, Harris? Yeah. Of course, we all love to see people brought back from the brink of death or to have all their dreams fulfilled when the future looked bleak. But what really interests me is the debate between believers and non-believers. Right. The skeptics versus those who have experienced a miracle firsthand. And then there are those of us who may not have experienced a miracle, but are still open to believing that they do occur. Because why wouldn't we want to? Right. According to Michael O'Neill of MiracleHunter.com, even people who are believers in God have an attraction to proofs of his existence. Sometimes it seems like he's hiding. O'Neill also says that miracles are a way that people see God touching the world. That's kind of a lovely way of putting it. Many people who have experienced a miracle themselves do often feel a connection with the divine, as we mentioned. But the connection doesn't need to be strong. Dr. Mary Neal, for example, grew up going to church on Sundays, but she wasn't religious. She was a physician prioritizing scientific evidence in the religion of the intellect. So what about you, Harris? Do you believe in miracles? I have to say definitely yes. I actually experienced my own little miracle. Do you want to hear the story, Walker? You know I do. 
Okay, so I had been in labor for about 31 hours with my firstborn son, and as you would expect, I was totally exhausted, but it came time for him to arrive on the scene, and everything seemed to be going well. But then my OBGYN said that the cord was wrapped around his neck, and she would cut it so that he could be delivered. But then his shoulder got stuck, and this is a rare and terrible thing to happen in delivery. It's called shoulder dystocia. And so with the cord cut and being stuck, he had no oxygen entering his body. And all of a sudden, madness ensued. My doctor started shouting to push like I'd never pushed before. And there were three nurses on my belly trying to, trying to get this baby out. But there was a moment, Walker, which I haven't talked about with many people, a moment of calm. And then all of a sudden, he was free. I've always thought that there was divine intervention that day. My kiddo was born and survived against all the odds stacked against him. So what about you? Do you believe in miracles, Walker? That's quite a story, Harris. Yes, I believe in the possibility of miracles. I'm sure there are some charlatans out there, and I'm sure that there are some miracles that we simply do not have a scientific explanation for yet. But I choose to believe that miracles can and do happen. Put it this way. I'm willing to keep an open mind. There is so much that we humans just don't understand yet about our world and our bodies that I think it's a bit short-sighted to flat out say they don't exist. Mm -hmm. Think about the brain itself. Most of what we know about the brain was discovered not all that long ago. Dr. David Kaplan, who in 2013 was a Canada Research Chair in Cancer and Neuroscience at the University of Toronto in the Hospital for Sick Children, said, almost everything we know about the brain, we know from the last 10 to 15 years. We just don't know what we don't know. Right. It's so fascinating to think about how much more there is to learn, isn't it? It is. Many moons ago, I was doing some research in the field of medical history, and I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, author of Medical Miracles, Doctors, Saints, and Healing in the Modern World. Dr. Duffin is a Canadian medical historian and hematologist. What is so cool is Dr. Duffin examined over 1,400 cases of medical miracles in the canonization files of the Vatican Archives and Library, with the intention of analyzing how medical miracles were reported and what has or has not changed over the past 400 years. Wow, that is beyond cool. So what did she find? Does she believe in miracles? Well, she believes that the miracles she studied did occur, but she herself doesn't believe in God. In an interview with the Catholic Weekly, she stated, These are miraculous healings in the absence of any good explanation, and they are things of wonder. So why not wonder at them and celebrate them? When asked about her belief in miracles, but not in God, she replied, my answer to that, although I do struggle with it, is that I think faith itself is a miracle. If you have faith, it is something to celebrate. So well put. Many people today, particularly physicians, feel that a good number of miracles of the past may likely have scientific explanations for them. Of course, that is entirely possible. And yet Eric Metaxas, the author of Miracles, What They Are, Why They Happen, and How They Can Change Your Life, points out that an extraordinary idea has arisen that the disbelievers in miracles consider them coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma. The fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them rightly or wrongly because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them rightly or wrongly because they have a doctrine against them. Interesting. So have you heard of Dr. Jeffrey Rediger? 
Yes, I have. He wrote Cured, the Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. He spent over 15 years studying spontaneous healing and refers to these experiences as being stories from the edge of medicine. Mm-hmm. He's now the medical director for the McLean Southeast Adult Psychiatric Program and an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. But he attended seminary school prior to med school. So he has a balanced perspective. Yeah, well, definitely an interesting one. He said, in the history of medicine, cases of spontaneous remission have almost never seen the light of a rigorous science. If you're on the science side or a physician, you call it spontaneous remission or a placebo and shrug your shoulders. If you're on the spiritual side or a theologian, you call it a miracle or spiritual healing. All of these terms are black boxes that have not yet been unpacked by science. Right. That's what I said. Exactly. You did. (laughs) In his TED Talk, Dr. Rediger notes that old theological writings consider that the body is a metaphor for something that the deeper mind is trying to learn. This ultimately made him question whether these people who experience spontaneous healing are able to open a curtain of perception in the deeper mind in some way, and that this then plays a role in their health and recovery. Fascinating. See, it all comes back to the mind, Harris. It is so fascinating, isn't it? Well, he has some pretty hardcore opinions on the topic. He believes that there is nothing spontaneous about spontaneous remission. These experiences bring about in the patient a deep change of perception of themselves in the world. He also believes that the relationship between the body, mind, and the soul may be the greatest mystery of our time. He remains inspired by the stories with evidence as they offer him hope and make him question the barriers that he can overcome himself. And maybe most importantly, he thinks that these stories accompanied by evidence need a platform because these stories inspire people and people who are inspired overcome barriers and then go on to inspire even more people. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he says there is power in your heart, in your mind that no medicine can touch and that those of us in medicine have a responsibility to understand this better. There are aspects to this that at the highest level, I can only speak about as a theologian. I think Eckhart Tolle had some valuable insight for us on this. He said, sometimes surrender means giving up trying to understand and becoming comfortable with not knowing. Thank you for joining us at Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, you would be a real gem if you would rate and review our show. It helps us to grow and expand our reach. You can also subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. Find us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker or visit us at www.homeandabroadpodcast.com. We have great merch, just saying. And of course, we would love to hear from you. And for you truly dedicated fans who have listened all the way to the end of this episode, we offer exclusive interviews, outtakes, challenges, and more on our paid channel, not even the cost of a latte once a month, depending, of course, on where you buy your coffee.